Now, we obviously have started a new series called Born, B-O-R-N. It's not Jason Born, it's Born. And it's the beginning of the Advent season, and the born that we're talking about, the birth that we're talking about, is obviously the birth of Jesus, uh, which is the culmination of Advent. And that's a special, special season. Everybody knows that, and everybody's aware of it. But to really understand the season, I think, we need to understand some of the birth experiences that took place in the Bible before that. Because there were some births that led up to the, to the Christmas, to Jesus coming in the first place. And they're really important. And if you don't understand those, Christmas is really reduced just to something pretty passive and pablum-like and just a pleasant story. But I want to begin by saying that we are completely unapologetic in talking about a commitment to Scripture and the authority of Scripture. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's the authority. In fact, one of the covenant tenants when they were becoming a church and things like that as they were trying to make decisions, where is it written? That was a, a fundamental foundational truth of the whole thing. And, uh, but we also accept the reality that people might interpret different passages differently. And that's okay, as long as we're anchored in Scripture and what we think the Scripture is calling us to do. So we're going to be looking at all this from the perspective of the Scripture, because that's our authority. However, there's one thing that I, I want to make clear. The Bible is not designed to tell us everything about everything that we would like to know about. That's not its purpose. It's not a book that gives information about all sorts of things. There's things that are mentioned might like to know about, but it's not talked about. Angels, for example. We know there's angels, and we don't know much about it. The Scripture's purpose is to tell us what we need to know. That's a key word, what we need to know about the idea of salvation. The idea of what we need to be saved from. What is salvation? What do we need to be saved to? That's what Scripture's about, and that principle is something that we use a lot. The idea of wanting to know things that we don't know, but having some things that we absolutely need. For example, I am really terrible, terrible, terrible when it comes to home crafts and thing, crafts, repairs and things like that. Margie's really good at it, but I'm really bad at it. And so what I need to know, for example, about electricity, I'd like to know how it works. I'd like to know more stuff. But what I need to know, I need to know which switch turns on which light, I need to know which plug this plug goes in, and I need to know who to call if it doesn't work. That's what I need to know. Kind of works that way with a lot of things. Um, cars, I'm just terrible at cars. And when the car breaks, it's, a, it's an interesting experience. I have this obligation, this manly obligation to open the hood, and I just look at it. I got no clue what I'm looking at. So then what I do is I bend over and look at it closer, and so I can just see better that I don't know what I'm talking about. But I've got a real clear vision of nothing. And so what I need to know is what the trip, where the AAA card is and how to get in touch with them. That's what I need to know. So does that make sense? There's things we want to know that we might not get to know, but there's some absolute things that we need to know. So what do we need to know leading up to Christmas? What do we need to know? We're going to begin at the beginning. We need to know about the birth of creation. So what do we need to know? We need to know what's in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface. There's probably a lot about that that we would like to know. We want to know. There's a lot of things that I'd like to know. But what I need to know is that God initiated creation. 
God was there before the beginning of creation. He was there before the beginning. He's going to be there after the end. That's what I need to know. I need to know that this came from the mind of God. For example, I think that's a great illustration of the principle. I'd like to know, is this seven literal days, seven 24-hour days? Is it seven periods of time? Is there a big bang in there somewhere? Is there evolution in there somewhere? Are there particles forming out of a vacuum somewhere? I'd like to know that stuff, but I don't need to know it. It's not gonna, it's just, it'd be nice to know, but I don't really need to know it. I don't need to know the process. What I need to know is that God is the originator. God started it. God brought it together. And that's the one thing that we need to know, that he is the anchor of the whole thing. The second thing we need to know is that there was a planful, I made up a word, planful process in play. This was not some willy-nilly thrown together, hmm, forgot dogs, think I better create a dog. It's nothing like that. It's organized, it's structured, and there's rules that make it work. Physicists might not believe in God, and that's their prerogative, but they sure act according to his rules. For example, they don't go that gravity works sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't. They don't go that light travels at 186 miles and miles a second, and sometimes it doesn't. They follow those rules because those rules are stabilizing. Those rules are things that make things work. And those rules, the space program is where I first came in, the vague awareness I have came there. Think about it, bringing those spaceships back, bringing those space shuttles and those capsules back into the Earth's atmosphere, an incredible feat. The Earth is rotating, the Earth is spinning on its axis. Not only that, it's rotating around the sun. To hit that just right is an amazing mathematical feat. Because if they come in too shallow, the craft's gonna bounce off the atmosphere and go out to somewhere. If they come in too straight, it's gonna burn up. The reason they could do that is God's rules are consistent and they work and they make things work better. And that's true for us as human beings too. I don't like to use the word rules, but a real principle is if we can do things the way God wants us to, things are gonna go better because he's the one that set it up in the first place. And finally, we need to know that the final product, what God created was good, it was very good. Genesis 1:21. God saw all that he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning and it was the sixth day. This very goodness, very goodness shows up in all sorts of ways, all sorts of ways. There was a perfectly harmonious relationship between people and the environment. Things worked. Things worked with the environment. There wasn't toil, there wasn't labor, there weren't storms, there weren't this, there weren't that. It was a perfect, harmonious relationship. It was a perfect, harmonious relationship between people. You know, there's a passage, it's an obscure little passage in Genesis, and a lot of people misinterpret it, I think. But it said, the man and woman were naked and they were not ashamed. Now that's not about sex, and that's not about working out at a health club and being fit and buff and all that. That's about a freedom to be themselves and to be open and to be honest and to be transparent and not to have to worry about mixed motives, not to have to worry about secret agendas, not to have to worry about all that stuff. They were free to be themselves. And folks, we don't live in that kind of world today, do we? We don't live that way. We just spend a lot of time trying to figure out what is going on with someone when they ask us something. Do they really mean it? Are they trying to get something from us? It wasn't that way. It was open and it was honest and it was straightforward. One friend of mine described it as life without complexity. And by complexity, he didn't mean simplicity or simple. He just meant that there weren't all these underlying things going on. It was straightforward. 
That'd be a great way to live. But the main thing it was, there was a viable, open, non-fearing relationship with God himself. And that's what made it all happen. The, the rules, the structure were in place. God was the hub. It worked around God. So that's thing number one about creation. And that brings us to birth number two. And birth number two is tricky. And it really stems from a question is, what happened? Because that's not the world that we live in now. We don't live in a world that's straightforward. We don't live in a world that's open and honest. We don't live in a world where people make decisions based on what's good for other people. We don't live in that world anymore. And the ironic thing, in my mind, we know more than people back then could have ever dreamt that we would know. We can do more, we have more technology, we have more instruments of communication, and yet our communication has probably never been worse. So what is the deal? What happened? What happened between there and where we are now? Well, the Bible has some answers for that too. This is a long passage, but I'm gonna read it, and I want you to just think about it. There's stuff in here that we won't know, we can't know, but see what you think we need to know from this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say to you, you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? By the way, that's not what God said. Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, and if you do, you will die. That's not what God said either. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Right there, folks, is the core issue. Right there, that's what switched the rules. That's what took God out of the center. That's what made God not the hub. He's saying, we want to be the hub. And frankly, we make that same decision every day of our lives. The woman was convinced, and she saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom, quote, that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly, listen to what happens after this, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. And here's another thing. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees, and the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told that you were naked? You that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree from the fruit I commanded you not to eat? And here is a stand-up guy right here. The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. So not me, it was the woman, and after all, you gave her to me, leave me alone, is basically what he's saying. So see, the choice was made, and that choice, that choice gave birth to a bunch of things, the second kind of birth we're talking about. So what do we need to know? The bottom line, what's the bottom line? Well, we need to know there's a tempter. We need to know that. We need to know that temptations are subtle. We need to know that. But the big thing we need to know is that that choice was made because that choice changed everything. That choice gave birth to all sorts of things. And so the choice to reject God, God's role as a centerpiece and ruler and put ourselves in that place, that gave birth to a lot of things. 
Just looking at the passage, we see the birth of blame. We see the birth of shame. We see the birth of hiding. We see the birth of denial. We see the birth of separation from, and hiding from God. No longer a straightforward relationship. Deception is born. Good sadness is born. Insecurity is born. Disease is born. Dissatisfaction is born. There's something in us that makes us dissatisfied with life. And we feel like we have to get more toys and more things and more this and more that or this or that or so on and so forth. And it never stops. But we never seem to be able to get satisfied truly, have peace. Great quote. Much of our activity these days is nothing more than a cheap anesthesia to deaden the pain of an empty life. Dissatisfaction was born. And all of nature has suffered. Listen to what it says in Romans. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And I don't know much about that, obviously. I've seen it happen twice. And it wasn't hard for me, uh, so I don't know. But the pains of childbirth, it was very, very difficult. It was difficult just to watch it. It's painful. All of creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Creation has become chaotic and difficult, and we're almost at war with the creation sometimes. Relational life is obviously more complex. There's mixed messages. There's mixed agendas. Coveting is complex. Lying is complex. Secrets are complex. Manipulation is complex. It's a mess. And also, death was born. Romans 5. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma that we're in. First sin and then death. And no one is exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relationships with God in everything and for everyone. And most tragic of all, we are disconnected from God. The basic rules on which the things were created have been violated. We're, we're out of connection. All these other things are symptoms. That's the core problem as we go forward. And you know, it's a grievous situation, very grievous. I remember the first time that I really came face to face with the creator watching uh, someone, the creator grieving. When I was a kid, and I think this happened probably in middle school, like back then they called it junior high, I had grown up with a family that my family had grown up with, the Cashes, Charlie and Mary Jane Cash. They lived behind us, and he was a very successful insurance guy, so he kept getting promoted. So they moved away, but they had two daughters, Pat and Libby. And Pat was my age, and Libby was my brother's age. And so we went to see them several times. We were that good of friends. Went to Dallas for one time, different things. But when we were about in the eighth or ninth grade, Pat had contracted leukemia, and she died. And I went to the funeral. It was really the first funeral of a contemporary I'd ever been to. I don't remember much about it. I remember two things. I spent, they had the casket open, and all you could see was a little curl of her hair. And I, I didn't have what it took to go up there and look. I remember three things. The second thing I remember is just how hard I had to fight to keep from crying. Because I was thinking, you know, boys don't cry. That was just a misnomer that I had. But the third thing that struck me is watching her parents, watching how broken they were. Charlie and Mary Jane, just how completely and totally broken. And it was almost like their, she and Pat, in a way, was their creation. And she was dying, and then she died. It's heartbreaking. Well, I think God is heartbreaking when he looks at his creation. God is grieved when he sees the creation that we've created. He doesn't want innocent children to die. He doesn't want there to be abuse. He doesn't want there to be assault. He doesn't want there to be affairs. He doesn't want there to be promiscuity. 
People doesn't want people messing up their lives with gambling and pornography or alcohol. He's grieved by racism and the way the poor are treated. He doesn't want people to live life feeling bad about themselves or being bullied, and the list goes on and on and on and on. God has got to be heartbroken with what he sees. Got to be. It's a bleak situation, folks. It is a bleak situation, and we're a part of it. And we can't fix it. We can't even fix ourselves. It's a bleak situation. Now, we have so much stuff, and there's so many distractions that we might not notice it. But it's a bleak situation. So what do we need to know? Third birth we need to know about. We need to know about what a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer discovered. He was a German theologian in World War II. He was captured, and he was put in prison, and he was eventually executed, I think sometime in 1944. This is a letter that he wrote to his fiancée in 1943 in December, the Christmas letter. He's writing it from a prison, and it, in fact, the, the book is called Letters from Cell Number 92. My dearest Maria, be brave for my sake, dearest Maria. We shall both experience a few hours so dark that we can scarcely withstand it. Why should we disguise that from each other? We shall ponder the incomprehensibility of our lot and be assailed by the question of why, over and above the darkness and shrouding humanity, we should be subjected to the bitter anguish of a separation whose purpose we cannot understand. How great is the temptation to feel ourselves at the mercy of blind chance. How sinister the way in which mistrust and resentment steal into our hearts at such times. And then when everything is bearing down on us to such an extent that all seems lost, the Christmas message comes. What difference did Christmas make? How did Christmas change things? Didn't get him out of prison. Didn't unseparate them. But it gave him hope. It gave him a sense of peace. It gave him a sense of direction. He knew Christmas is not about sitting around sweet little Jesus boy with animals making pleasant sounds. He knew that this was a game changer. He knew that this changed everything. He knew that this was not a play that we just sit and watch and go home thinking, hmm, that was nice. I enjoyed that story. It's not something that we get uninvolved with. It's sooner or later it calls us to be involved. The reality is, you take Christmas away, and the darkness is going to win. Death is going to win. Hopelessness is going to win. Despair is going to win. What we fail to realize that it's not just sweet little Jesus boy laying in that manger. I just wrote down some things. This is what's in the manger. This is redemption in that manger. This is hope in that manger. Hope for a future that is truly safe with no more fear and no more tears. This is love in that manger. This is the author and creator of life itself in that manger. This is the one who will bring all creation back together in all the glory it was intended to have. This is the beginning of a complete turnaround of the cycle of death and sin, both for the world in general and for us as individuals. This is the one who ultimately pronounces judgment on the world. This is the one who will bring down the mighty and raise the humble. He will deliver the last, the lost, the least, and the little. Talk about something I'd like to know. I'd like to know how this worked. Can you tell me how the God of the universe, the God that was there before the beginning and is going to be there after the ending, that God, how in the world did the part of that God, the, the triune God, consent to be made an embryo, 
implanted in the womb of a peasant girl in an obscure town in a poor country in a very dangerous place. How in the world could that happen? And not only that, how in the world could that child grow up to die on a cross in a brutal, horrible death? How could that happen? I don't know. I don't know. That's bigger than my mind. In fact, there's part of me that thinks it's pretty arrogant to even expect to know. And an even more vexing question is why did it happen? Why? Well, I do know the answer to why. I do know the answer to that part of it. What I need to know is that there's a God who loves me and loves you enough to make that sacrifice and die so that anyone who chooses to accept him can be born again, can have a new birth, a new experience, a new life, a life of purpose and hope and love. That's what I need to know. So what do you need to know? What do different ones of us need to know? You're probably not going to find out everything you want to know or would like to know. It's probably not going to happen. That's just the nature of the creator and the creature. It's probably not going to happen. But you can know enough. Every one of us in here, sooner or later, can know enough to make a decision about Jesus. In fact, I believe that God will make that possible for every one of us to know enough to make a decision. He's not going to leave us floundering out there with knowing nothing. How that works, I don't know, but I believe he will do that. So as we move into this Advent season, I, was encu- I would encourage you, as much as you possibly can, to take some time and just ponder this. Ponder this, this child in the manger. Ponder this thing, and what do we need to know? We know enough to make a decision. And ultimately, we can't stay in the audience. Ultimately, we can't do that. Ultimately, we're going to have to step out and make a decision. We're going to have to make a choice. So I would really encourage us to ponder that as we go forward. Sooner or later, we've got to decide on that. And if you're considering this, which I hope you are, I want to ask you to do one thing. encourage you not to simply grit your teeth and try harder. That'll be incredibly frustrating. The Apostle Paul said, whenever I want to do good, I don't. And when I don't want to do this, I do it. He just says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this dilemma? It's a horrible issue. But it's also not the scriptural issue. The scriptural issue is not grit your teeth and try harder. The scriptural issue is you must be born again. Another birth experience, a new birth, born again. Paul describes us as new creations. We're not the old anymore. The old has passed away. Doesn't mean that we've got it all clear in our minds. It doesn't mean that we've got it all figured out. But it does mean that we have a chance for a life that has meaning and purpose and hope and honor and all sorts of good things. It'll be a process, but it'll be a good process. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is to finish up just by taking a few minutes to kind of just pray or talk to God or be quiet. And so what we're going to do is take about 30 seconds. And I'm just going to be quiet and would like for you to just go to God with whatever you want to go to God with. Some of you might want to be asking about this whole born-again experience. And so please feel free to talk to Bill or Adam or anyone else about all that. So let's go to the Lord. Then after 30 seconds, I'll close and we'll be done. Let's go to the Lord.
Father, we come to you now. And we just thank you for this season that we're celebrating. And we ask you, God, to give us a sense of, of what this is really about. And Lord, we pray all the time that we won't get distracted with all the hustle and bustle and the shopping and the stores and the cooking and the preparing and all of this. It's really hard not to do. It's really hard not to do that. But somehow sort it through in our minds that we can realize the importance of who's being born and the implications of that, the implications for us. For those of us that have sat in the audience for a long time, I just pray that you would trigger something in us that moves us towards you to help us to experience this new birth, this new life in Christ. And God, we cannot possibly thank you enough for this whole experience. We just thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.